amazing. That is the best bumper we've ever made. Hey, welcome friends in the room, friends of Fort Worth and in Plano, and uh, those tuning in and joining us around. I'm gonna read the uh, passage that we're gonna be in tonight as we continue this series, Thou Shalt, and look at the Ten Commandments. So we're gonna be Exodus chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you can flip open. If not, it'll be on the screens and on these large screens here. And I'm gonna start in verse uh, 12 of chapter 20, and we will... Uh, read through verse 17. So it says this. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to him. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we pray that you would instruct our hearts and teach us from your ancient scriptures and that these words that were uh, given long ago to the nation of Israel, that were given to lead them to life, would do so tonight in the hearts of your people. Would you teach us, strengthen us, help us to see Jesus. Pray all this in his name, amen. Well, in my uh, house... We have been talking a lot about discipline lately because my wife and I have a son who is uh, kind of around the age of two, and, uh, and he's at this weird age where um, we're trying to figure out, you know, is, uh, will spanking work? Because up to this point, uh, anytime he gets spanked, he doesn't totally understand it, so he thinks it's a game, so he'll either just laugh or he'll hit you back and be like, hey, two can play this one, and, uh, and he just doesn't totally get it. And, uh, and we can't do... Uh, time out yet because he's two. So time out, he'll like just start tearing down the dresser or, and break something or break him. And, uh, and so we're kind of caught in this middle stage. And, and I don't know uh, where you grew up, or, uh, but when I grew up, when I grew up, uh, the, uh, the spanking thing, especially at an early age, was not something that, hey, we kind of thought about. It, we believed in laying on of hands in my family. And you got spanked if you uh, misbehaved, and especially early on. Now, as you got older... And, you know, you, your size and, and you get bigger, all of a sudden you kind of transition into the grounding phase and, uh, and you leave out the spanking thing. But it was always worse, or if, you're, uh, if you remember, that experience of whenever you switched over to no longer being spanked, and yes, I can't believe I'm opening with this right now, but uh, whenever that happened, you always long for like, oh man, I just wish that I could go back to the spanking, not be grounded and have to miss out on the party on Friday night. You serious, I have to be home by the street lights coming on? Can't we just go back to kind of the old system and be punished there? And uh, because it uh, only lasted a moment and went nearly as bad as being grounded or restricted from leaving the home, cut off from all your friends. And as I thought about that this week, really, uh, when you think about discipline, like the worst disciplines that people normally give or worst punishments that people give in, in all these different contexts have to do with being cut off or being separated from other people or relationships. Like think about it inside of your home where you get grounded. Hey, you can't go out with your friends. At school, if uh, you were part of the public school system, if you misbehaved or someone you knew misbehaved, they got in a fight in class or something happened, they would be set aside or cut off from the rest of the class in detention. And then if they continued to misbehave, continued to act out, they would be uh, cut off where they'd say, hey, you can't come here for the next few days. You are suspended. And then if it got really bad, they would be what? Expelled. And they would be, hey, you can no longer come here ever again. Good luck out there. Get your GED. And, uh, and they would totally remove you. 
And not only does it happen in the education system, think about the prison or the criminal system. Like the justice system is built on prison is essentially the government saying, hey, you broke society's law, we're gonna give you a timeout. And you're gonna be set aside for a year, two years, six months uh, life at some uh, amount of time where the punishment given there is, hey, we're gonna cut you off from society, from relationships. And then further, if you think about it, if you break the prison's law, there's an even worse punishment. The worst living punishment that we have comes for those who can't uh, abide by or keep the prison's law, something called solitary confinement, which is total removal of any relationships or any other humans inside of your life. I mean, literally, it is the worst punishment that we have in our system, the worst living punishment that we have in our system, and it's simply this. We're gonna cut you off entirely from any sort of human interaction and any sort of human life. I mean, it's such a, uh, it does such damage in a lot of the people who have solitary confinement that it's constantly being evaluated of like, man, is, is this a violation of human rights? Think about that, like that's crazy because there's something inside of all of us where what we discover is when someone is put in solitary confinement, like they psychologically begin to break down they begin to come like less than human. Like there's something inside of you and something inside of me that, that can't function if we're totally cut off from other people. We weren't made to be cut off from other people. And the reason I start there is because in the same way that you and I share this deep need to have human relationships with other people, we also share this thing inside of us called sin nature or something broken where we though we have a need to have human relationships, constantly sabotage our relationships by our own sin or our own decisions, our own, you know, the ways that we fail to, uh, uh, you know, follow God's law or just do what the right thing is, fail to tell the truth, you know, keep our word, fail to care for people. It's the reason why 50% of marriages end in divorce because though people have a desperate need for relationship, we all have that, it's clear to see, people also have something inside of them that makes it hard for them to function in those relationships. And this isn't a modern day problem exclusively, it's a problem that has existed for a long time. It's a problem that when God looked down at the nation of Israel, he said, look, I don't want you to live in solitary confinement, isolated from one another, not because of a prison cell, but in your own mind, you have created solitary confinement because the decisions you made have cut you off from being able to have healthy relationships with other people. So he looked down to the nation, he said, I'm gonna give you rules to follow so that you don't, because of your sin nature, cut yourself off from other people. And I'm gonna give you laws that will uh, tell you how to live amongst one another. So tonight, we're gonna look at commands five through 10 of the 10 commandments where God essentially says to the nation, hey, I wanna give you instructions on how you are to relate to one another, how you are to treat one another, how you can live in society together because I'm a God who loves you. I don't want you to be cut off. I don't want you to go through life and because of uh, the broken part of you, uh, experience separation in your relationships. And so we're gonna pick it up in uh, the fifth command tonight as we explore uh, just these, these commands that have really everything to do with uh, relationships with one another. In other words, Jesus was asked one day, hey, sum up the entire law and the commands. And Jesus was like, all right, you want me to do it in like tweetable form? Here's how I would tweet the 10 commandments. Love God, love people. And, and so inside the 10 commandments, first four are about loving God and the last six are about loving people. We're gonna look at those six and dive in to God's instructions to the nation of Israel, how they are to relate to one another. If you're just catching up with us, Ten Commandments were these laws given to the people of this nation of Israel 
that were given to this people who had just essentially gotten on their feet as a nation. They didn't know how to live. God, uh, through Moses, says, hey, I'm gonna have you instruct the people and tell them how I can lead them to life. Or if they follow these laws, it will lead them to life. And this is how they are to govern one another. If you've missed the last couple weeks, you can go find all the messages that we have on this on the Porch app, as always, or on the podcast, and we go from there. So we're gonna pick it up in uh, verse 12 as we explore these six ideas. Normally we do three kind of breakdowns in the text. We're gonna look at six tonight of these six instructions God gives to the people in the nation of Israel. Here's what he says. Honor your father and your mother. The word honor is essentially ascribe importance or value to, treat as important or valuable your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, the Lord your God has given you. If you read this and you're like me, you think, man, God, you're given inside of your big 10, really? Number five is gonna be how you should treat your parents? We're really gonna waste time on this? And you're gonna put it above like murder and adultery and all that stuff? Really, you're gonna tell us how to interact with our parents? And God, over and over inside of the scripture says, honor to me is a big deal. Our first idea that is right from the text of that you and I, if we are to have healthy or functioning relationships, God would say, you have to honor your parents. You have to live in a way that treats your parents with the importance that their position, not their behavior, gives them. I am commanding and calling my people. They are to treat their parents with importance. You are to honor your parents. Paul picked up on this verse and said that you and I are to honor in Ephesians chapter six, verse two and three. He says, you and I honor your father and your mother. So in case you're like, isn't that the Old Testament? What about the new? Paul says, you are to honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may, be, may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. So he connects the idea that the only command we're told with that promise is, uh, is the fifth one, where God says, hey, I want you to honor your father and your mother so much so that if you don't, you are not going to live long in the land that you, your God is giving you, that I take it very, very seriously. I want you to honor. Honor, all throughout the Bible, is a big deal to God. I mean, he cares about honoring older people. We see that in another place, Leviticus uh, chapter 20, where God says, hey, when you're around people who are your elders, they enter the room, you should stand up. Think about that. Honor, he talks about honoring the government or honoring the emperor. God is all about honor, which I think is hard as Americans for us to really get our arms around because we're kind of this individualistic, hey, I don't need to honor anybody. We're all equal. Hey, I don't need to stand for anything. And there's part of that that overflows from a freedom that we have, but there's part of it that sets us up to not be able to follow what God says. You and I are called to honor your parents, not because of their behavior, whether or not you think they earned it, but because you're commanded to. In other words, honor is something that's given, not earned. And I know this is hard for all of us, myself included, because there's this thing where we think like, man, I would honor someone if they deserve it. I mean, you can look around and look at uh, any social media or news. It's not hard to see that in the political climate that we're in, there's just blatant disrespect and dishonor that goes to the government. If you're a Christian, that is wrong. And I, let me play all my cards. There's a lot of things I disagree with with President Trump. But if you're a follower of Christ, you and I are called to honor the government or the emperor, uh, Paul says in Romans 13. And you may be like, yeah, but you know, you know how bad Trump is. He was talking about Nero, who was literally having Christians killed and beheaded. And he says, honor that guy. He's a little, he's all kinds, he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, which is what Nero was. He's crazy, but we honor him. God would say, hey, you're supposed to honor. Honor is a big deal to God. And when it comes to your parents, he says, you and I are called to honor our parents, whether or not we think that they've earned it. Honor is not earned, it's given. 
inside of a room like this, uh, you may share stories like mine where, hey, my family, I come from a broken home, or my father, I would say, did not earn, or I don't feel like, oh man, he definitely earned honor. It doesn't matter. In my interactions with him, God would say, you're to honor your father and your mother, just like with you. This week at Thanksgiving, you are called when you sit around the table with your parents and all the ways that they uh, have, as every parent does and will, failed to be uh, God's best as a father or a mother. You are called to honor your father and mother. What does it look like to honor your parents? It doesn't mean that you just don't have boundaries or you continue to let your parents just hurt you and, and drive your life. It doesn't mean you have to worship the same God that they do. It doesn't mean that you just you know, take abuse and you accept it, but it does mean that you're respectful. That when you interact this week, when you enter back in, maybe you're coming back and you're coming either uh, home for Thanksgiving and, uh, and you're about to step back into uh, where, you used to, where you grew up or where your parents live. When you step back into that home, you honor, you're respectful of your parents. When you engage in the conversation, you don't just blow up at your parents. That you honor and speak respectfully, act respectfully to your parents. God would say, out of the 10 commands I could give any, and one of them, number five, I want you to know it is important that you honor your parents. If they were mean and terrible for me, to me, or mean and terrible to you, do I still have to honor them? Yes. I mean, if for no other reason than the very fact that you're here, they played a role in. And so there's at least something at the end of the day you can be thankful for. I'm alive. And God would say, honor your father and your mother. Uh, side note, in dating, if you are dating someone, Man, one of the, the a crucial thing that you wanna make sure you see is how they treat their parents. If you're dating a girl who dishonors her mom, dishonors her father in the way that she interacts with them, talks to them, speaks about them, any of those things, you should be concerned. Because the relationships that exist inside of the home there are gonna exist inside of your home. Uh, same thing with a guy. That you should have red flags if the guy you're dating dishonors his parents or doesn't speak with respect or talk about his parents with respect. Uh, this is also the reason why this principle of honoring your parents is why we encourage, if you're dating someone as a guy, one of the uh, ways you can lead well in that relationship is by, when it's appropriate, um, uh, getting time with the father or the mother of the girl that you're dating and sitting them down, telling them, hey, this is uh, who I am. These are my intentions. This is where I see the relationship going. I'm not wasting her time. I'm interested in pursuing this towards marriage. If that doesn't happen, I'm committed to leaving her better than I found him her and uh, him or her, I guess, and, uh, and whatever I need to do uh, to communicate well with you, I want to do that. I want to honor possibly my future father and mother-in-law. So God says, honor your parents, first thing. Number two, as it relates to living in a way that won't have society cut off and dysfunctional relationally, he says this, you shall not, verse 13, murder. So God commanded, you shall not take the life of another person. Second idea, we don't murder. I think most of us in the room are like, all right, check, hey, we can move on, I haven't done this one. Until, and if not, uh, <laughs> never mind. And, uh, but until you get to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter five, when Matthew, Jesus shows up and in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon ever, Matthew chapter five, verse 28, looks out in this crowd and he gives all these different instructions and one of them is, hey, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And I tell you that if you hold anger in your heart, that you, uh, I'll just read it so I don't butcher it, that you shall not murder. Anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. It's the same punishment, the same sin. You've heard it said, don't murder and you're fine. I tell you that if you harbor anger towards someone inside of your heart, it's the same sin. You're a murderer, he says. In our country, 
today, there's not only a lot of people who are harboring anger, and Jesus would say, you've got to deal with that. There are people you need to go forgive, ask forgiveness from. The verse right after that says, you need to leave your gift at the altar, stop worshiping God, and go be reconciled with that person. There's not only a lot of people who are harboring anger in their heart, and Jesus would say, that's murderous to you and to me. But we as a country and a society continue to still allow and accept murder, the taking of a human life, which God says is not okay. Every life out there was made in the image of God himself, unlike anything else in creation. Human life is distinct, he says, and the way that primarily, or one of the chief ways that this happens, not the only way this happens, is through abortion. Since 1973 in Roe versus Wade, 60 million lives have been lost. I mean, that is 20% of the population. That's a fifth of our country gone. And the world around us that continues, I mean, the good news is scientifically, as we continue to uh, see more and more of what's inside of the womb, uh, many people are coming to the conclusion that, hey, that is a life. I can see its eyes, I hear its heartbeat, I can see all the different parts that make it up and more and more people. And what I mean by that is like the generation that we're a part of is more pro-life than the generation in front of us. Like people are beginning to go, hey, I think this is wrong. It's, it's becoming more clear. And the generation after us is more conservative than any of the generations in front of us, other than the Great Depression generation. Think about that. So the good news is there's hope for those of us who hope to see and believe that we will see in our lifetime abortion ended in our generation. And so there's hope there, and if it's a part of your story where at some point in the past you made the decision to do something that um, others may have encouraged or maybe you've never even talked about, here's what you need to know. There's not just hope for our country. There's grace for you. The same guy, Moses, who was helping write down the Ten Commandments said, I'm a murderer. That's Moses. And yet God looked at him and said, you're gonna be the one who leads my people. Whatever is a part of your past is not a problem for God. And he doesn't change how he feels about you, his love for you, and his grace that's offered to anyone who will freely accept it. And he'll take that part of your past and use it as a platform to tell other people about him and his goodness. But it is still a problem in our country. So he says, you shall not take human life, murder. The third one is you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery, that you're not to have sex outside of marriage. And uh, if you're like, man, but technically adultery involves someone who's married, again, that would work until we get to Jesus, who in Matthew chapter five looked out into this crowd and he said, hey, you've heard you shall not commit adultery. So as long as you don't sleep with a married woman or as long as um, you know, you're, no one is married involved, then that's fine. And he says, look, if you even lust at someone, you have committed adultery with them in your heart. And then Paul, who says, look, any sex that takes place outside of marriage is sexual immorality. I mean, so very quickly, everyone in the room goes, yep, okay, guilty. Sexual immorality or adultery, Jesus would say. If you think that you have to sleep with someone to be an adulterer, uh, you're wrong. And he looks out in this crowd and says, man, the standard is, is way higher. And Moses tells the people of God, you are not to allow, uh, you are to keep sex sacred, if you will, or keep sex for the context of marriage. Don't have sex outside of marriage was the third point that I wrote down from that which is a huge, it's crazy. When you think about it in Jesus' terms, think about the amount of just adultery that it's, it's really almost acceptable in our culture today. If lust counts, which is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, I mean, truly, we're all adulterers. 
And in our country today, I mean, it's almost encouraged. It's, it's an industry that's exploding and making billions of dollars every year. The erotic romance novel business alone, think about this, is over a billion dollars a year with Fifty Shades of Grey and all the different books that come out of that. The pornography industry makes more money than all of NBA, MOB, NFL, all combined. It, it counts for 43% of internet activity where Jesus would say that's adultery. And if that's a part of your story, man, we have all kinds of reasons. If that's going on in your present, which candidly I know it is inside of a room like this, 70% statistically of men have been involved in pornography in the recent past, last month to six weeks, and one in three users are women. And if that's a part, we've got all kinds of resources. We would encourage you, you can't fight that alone. You can go to the Porch blog, you can go to our website, you can find all kinds of stuff and learn and we'll meet with you, talk with you, pray with you, share from our own experience of how pornography has come in and you see it in a moment, but it takes a lifetime to get rid of seeing it and how you can experience freedom from that. But Jesus would say, and Moses said, and God said to my people, you shall not commit adultery, keep sex sacred. Do not uh, defile the marriage bed or keep sex in the context of marriage and marriage alone. And the reason why this was such a big deal to God, and he hits on it over and over and over again, here's why, is because God knows that anytime you play with sex, we talked about this a lot, but outside of the context of marriage, it's only hurting the people involved. Like it's not just, hey, it's two consenting adults, it's no big deal. It's hurting and is gonna create scars anytime sex is introduced outside of the context of marriage. Homosexual sex, oral sex, any type of sex, it only creates scars in the people that are a part of it. I was reading a book uh, last week, that, um, or a, a couple weeks ago, and inside of the book, it was talking about, this is gonna feel like a really sharp left turn from uh, uh, defining adultery. It was talking about sharks. And, uh, <laughs> and the mating patterns of sharks. And, and the book was basically saying that, hey, the way that you identify if a female shark has uh, mated or procreated is that they have scars on their body, that there's mating scars that uh, come up, that the way that they mate is the male shark will come on up and he will bite onto the female shark in order to uh, secure or hold himself as the, the shark uh, mates on. I know your minds are running a ton of different places. <laughs> bite the tattoo on the shark's shoulder. And... Uh, and that will be how you can tell. Like in other words, if you're studying sharks, you can be like, oh, they, those are mating scars. They're scars. Scars mean sex in the shark world. In the human world, sex means scars. That none of us, it's impossible. Outside of the context of marriage, you cannot escape the fact that if you introduce sex in any relationship, any part of your past, that it's going to bring scars. What kind of scars? It's gonna bring uh, dysfunction into a relationship. But even think about this. I mean, the scars that will come in five years from now when you're married and your spouse is wondering how, how you're comparing them to other people that they've slept with. I mean, it'll bring scars in just the ways that it breaks apart relationships. It keeps relationships together longer than they ever should have been because of kind of the euphoria and it's like electricity when we touch because of it's just amazing sex together and they never should have been a relationship that stayed and finally it breaks apart, causes all kinds of pain and heartache there that just like in the shark world where sex means scars are there in the human world, outside of the context of marriage, Sex means scars, and God, who looks down at the nation of Israel, says, I don't want you to take this incredible gift outside of marriage, or it will bring scars. Do not commit adultery, nation of Israel. He then goes into stealing. He says this, uh, verse 15, you shall not steal. 
And again, I think this is one where we think, man, I'm not, I, I haven't stolen, I don't steal, it's not a big problem for me, not something I need a lot of accountability on. I think the most common theft that is taking place, uh, maybe in general, but at least inside of this room, is stealing from our employer. Salary.com did a study where they found that the average employee uh, out of an eight-hour day uh, does not work for two hours of that day or does not do things that are associated with their company and their organization, that they will spend it either surfing the internet was 43% of the reason why people did it, to uh, on social media, to socializing, to just doing kind of personal things and taking care of personal business or bills or different things. But two hours, think about that. That's stealing from your employer. As Christians, we're told in Titus chapter two that we're to do everything at our jobs or at work in a way that makes the teachings of our Savior, Titus chapter two, that makes the teachings of our Savior more attractive. And then it says this right after, and do not steal. And that it's as followers of Christ inside of our workplace, we should be the hardest workers, not the ones who are gonna, um, if we can, get away with not working the way that we say that we're working for. And I think Jesus and Moses would say that stealing, you're taking what's not yours. He then says this, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, that you shall not lie, that you and I are to speak the truth. How do we have healthy relationships among God's people, that we speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that we don't lie on a resume, we don't lie about our past, uh, you know, sport abilities to make ourselves look better about, you should have seen me in, in high school, would have made it pro, but, you know, my knee, and uh, we don't lie about anything like that. We don't lie uh, about... Um, you know, our uh, job experience, we don't lie. That we speak the truth to one another. We don't spread slander or false testimony about people. We don't gossip. And you may be being like, look, I gossip, but I only tell the truth. I've got great sources. Gossip is also a sin. And so it's not a, like a loophole there. But the way that we use our words, we speak the truth to one another. We don't shrink back from telling the truth. When someone wants an honest answer, we do it and speak the truth in love. That's what Christians do. And God says, in order to have healthy relationships among my people, you've got to speak the truth to each other. Honesty. And then he gets to the sixth or the final command, which I think is the most profound out of all of them, or in reading it, it seemed profound to me and ministered to me, where he says this, talking about covet. You shall not covet, which just means, hey, strongly desire or be jealous for your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife, or his female and male servant, um, or his uh, ox or his donkey, which would be like the SUV he drives or the car that he drives, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, covet, as we said, covet is to strongly desire or almost lust after. Uh, you can tell that you're coveting if you are unhappy because of what you have or don't have that others do. You can tell that you're coveting. I mean, honestly, like Instagram should just be changed to covet.com. That's essentially what so much of it is, where you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it again. And why is she always posting about her wedding dress and how she can't find it yet? And uh, you're just seeing and scrolling through. It's crazy how Instagram or social media in general has fueled this inside of our country. And what's so unique about this law is, is think about it with me for a second. That's the only law on there that you can't police. Like every other law, you can, you can make up a policing system, you can catch someone alive, they had adultery, you caught him there, he murdered, hey, we can chase this down, detective, I found it. This is the only unenforceable law that exists on there. Like in other words, no one's ever gonna call the police and be like, yes, uh, officer, I, uh, 
I need to report something. There's a guy outside my house, and I think he's gone from admiring to coveting, and somebody needs to get over here, man. Like, nobody would ever even attempt to enforce it. There's no nation on earth that has a law like this because it has nothing to do with the outside. It's all about the inside. And God, through this law, says to the nation of Israel that I'm a God who cares about the heart. I don't just care about the hands or what you do on the outside. I care about your heart. I don't want you to be ruled. I don't want your emotions to be ruled by what you have or you don't have and, and why uh, everyone else seems to get married and uh, how you know, your uh, friends are all in the next phase of life with their toddler at the mall in Lululemon clothes and you're just depressed about it. I don't want you to be ruled by that or how much money you make or any of those different things. Any of the things that, candidly, it's so easy. I think if there's one sin on here that is very acceptable in Dallas, it's this one. I, honestly, like, I don't even think, nobody ever feels even guilty about this one. Think about it. Like, I've never had someone come down front after any message and be like, hey, I just need to, I just need to tell someone, um, you, can we get a little private? Yeah. I've been coveting, and, uh, and I, I just, I'm overwhelmed with guilt. Like, no one, you, you coveted today, and you don't feel guilty about it. And God says, I care about the heart. I care about it. It may not be policeable. Others may not see it. I care about you not being ruled by what you don't have. The sixth thing is don't covet. Nation of Israel, I do not want you to be ruled by what you have or what you don't have. As we've said before, comparison is the thief of joy. And it is no surprise why depression is up and linked to social media as we are exposed not just to what our friends have. It used to be kind of like, hey, if I want to be, if I want to covet what you have, I got to come over to your house and kind of see things. Now, it's all online. I can see it all. I can see what celebrities, what total strangers have to be discontent about my life. And God says, I don't want you to be ruled. Maybe the healthiest thing some of us in the room tonight need to do is you gotta get off Instagram. You gotta put the Pinterest uh, away. You gotta get off Facebook or whatever is feeding that inside of you. And you know at the end of the day, like it's impacting your emotions, your anxiety, your, your happiness, and God says, I don't want you to be ruled by anything other than me. As you look at the commands, and, and I'll really close here, I mean, you go through the list and you're like, oh man, as it relates to interacting with other people, I've fallen short of this standard. I mean, especially when Jesus shows up and he raises everything and says, hey, look, you, you think murder is, is the only thing you need to be worried about? If you have anger, you're a murderer. And Jesus shows up and he says, you're an adulterer. And so if you recap the commandments, you sit in this room right now, many of us, most of us, probably all of us, if we're honest, and if not, you broke the other, or you broke the lying command, would say, according to the Bible or Jesus, I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I covet and I have fallen short of what God's requirements or the standards of the Ten Commandments and the law. That whatever, if that's the standard, I have fallen way short of it. And Jesus himself is gonna show up and say, you have fallen even farther from it than you think. And in that same Sermon on the Mount, he looked out in the crowd and here's what he said, it was crazy. You must be perfect. Hey, Jesus, I thought, you know, like the whole, you know, like, give me a hug, you're my, you're my homeboy, Jesus, you know, we're tight and you're awesome and you're, you're loving and accepting. He looked out in the crowd and he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. If you want to get in on your own, you want to do it through your obedience, you must be perfect. 
And unless your righteousness, he says, exceeds uh, that of this really religious group called the Pharisees, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What, Jesus, are you saying? That you are not enough. And on your own, you will never get there. You will never behave your way into a relationship with a God who is there and died and loves you. How do I know that, that even the Ten Commandments point to this idea? What happens after the Ten Commandments? You know what happens in the very next verses after the Ten Commandments? I and mean, this like ministered to me so much this week, it was so crazy. Two verses later, what happens in the Ten Commandments? It doesn't get a lot of playtime. Like the verse is kind of right after the 10. It's not like, oh, that's my favorite memory verse right there. That doesn't get a lot of playtime, but what happens? Let's read it. Then the Lord said in verse 22 of chapter 20 to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Don't make any other gods alongside of me and don't bring or don't make yourself gods of silver or gold. Here's what I want you to do. The first proactive command, you are to make yourself an altar. Make yourself an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it. And bring your burnt offerings, which is for sin, and your fellowship offerings, which is to have a relationship with me, your sheep and your goats and your cattle, that you are to make sacrifices. I want you to build an altar. And wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. What is the very first thing? God finishes the list, and then what does he say? I want you to build me an altar. Because you're not gonna be able to keep this list. And I want you to take sacrifices and animals and every time that you sin, I want you to kill animals because I want you to associate that a sacrifice needs to be paid if there is sin. And I'm not a God who's saying, hey, I expect you to keep it. It's as though, I mean, think about it. It's the next verses. Here's the commands. You won't keep them, so bank an altar because sacrifices need to be paid. And every single page, he's pointing to the fact that if there's sin, it requires a sacrifice. It's almost as though he's saying, I know that you will not be able to keep the law, and I'm going to provide a way. And this sacrificial system will ultimately point, not to a sacrifice of a blood or a goat or anything, but to what Jesus would do on the cross. From every uh, page in the scripture, we see that it's always been pointing to Jesus. I mean, think about it, two verses. Here's the list, you can't keep them. You need a sacrificial system. And this system right now is just gonna be temporary because it's gonna point like everything else in the Bible to a savior who will be the one who will bridge the gap for you for all the ways that you and I have failed to meet the standard and failed more than we even realize. And he says it's always been pointing to this one. And every passage of the New Testament It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. It's all about Jesus. And what that means is that nobody gets to stand up here. We don't worship anybody uh, because of the way that they were able to keep the law. In other words, we don't sit here and be like, oh, praise the name of the, that guy, Bob, praise his name, he's awesome, that all of it goes to Jesus. And it's all about him. And he would look to the nation of Israel and say, I'm gonna give you laws and I know you won't be able to keep them but would your inability and the fact that every time there is sin, there will be sacrifice point you to the fact that one day I will put an end to the altars and I will put an end to the sacrifice because I will become a man, Jesus, God become a man to die on a cross, to pay for the penalty of every sin, of every infraction against the holy eternal God and pay for your sin. And I don't even wanna put too many paragraphs between these commands and the requirement of a system that would point you to a savior. It's all about him. It's always been about him, it will always be about Jesus. Let me pray.
Father, thank you that 3,000 years ago, 4,000, that you not only just gave the law and you spoke to your people, you said that there will come a day and a day that no more sacrifices will be required because you, perfect, holy, righteous one, will become the sacrifice on our behalf. I pray for friends in the room that are filled with the idea that, man, I'll never be good enough, that they would come to the realization that they will never be good enough. But there's a God who loved them so much that he was willing to die for them, and from very early on, he said and spoke the message through the Ten Commandments, you will never be good enough. And sacrifice will be required, but I will pay that sacrifice. Thank you that every page of Scripture, every system that was given to us points to our Savior in Jesus. And we worship him in song.